For the seventh episode of the Brain Bios podcast, we interviewed Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, distinguished professor at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Loftus is my all-time favorite psychologist whose work and life I deeply admire. With a CV that is 46 pages long, it's impossible to comprehensively introduce Dr. Loftus. In a study published by the Review of General Psychology identifying the 100 most eminent psychologists of the 20th century, a list that included Freud, Skinner, and Piaget, Dr. Loftus was number 58 and the top-ranked woman on the list. She was elected to the National Academy of Science in 2004. She's published 23 books and over 500 scientific articles. As we discuss in the podcast, my admiration for Dr. Loftus grew not only out of her research on human memory, which is eloquently characterized by the American Association for the Advancement of Science as having profound impact on the administration of justice in the United States and abroad, but also her, quote, courage in promoting science and facing hostility in doing so, as put by Nature magazine. As scientists, we all hope that our work has implications outside the laboratory, but Dr. Loftus went so far as to apply memory research in the real world to save people's lives, despite essentially the harshest criticism one can imagine. Honestly, she's my hero. We flew to California to interview Dr. Loftus, where she graciously hosted us in her home. You will hear that her microphone captured her voice perfectly, but unfortunately, our microphone was not working. This serves only to amplify her voice in the interview, the most important one in the room. After the interview, Dr. Loftus took us to one of her usual dinner spots, and we fell more in love with her. She is, of course, wise and thoughtful, but she is also generous with her time, easy to talk to, and a lot of fun. We began by asking Dr. Loftus how she ended up in psychology. Well, I entered UCLA as an undergraduate, and I was a math major. I, I was pretty good at math, and I really loved algebra, and I really loved geometry, and I, you know, I won some math prizes. But when I got to UCLA, as long as I was doing algebra, geometry, even trigonometry, and then calculus, I, not so much. And, but I was determined to f finish my math degree, but then I, I took some, you have to take electives. So I took introductory psychology from Alan Parducci, my intro teacher, and I just loved it. You know, it, I can't even remember why. I, I, I yeah. can't even remember why, but I loved the course. So I started taking more psychology electives and I ended up uh, getting an undergraduate degree with a double major in math and psychology. So then what was I gonna do with that? And for a while I thought maybe I would teach math and maybe teach math in high school or something like that. Or then I heard about this field called mathematical psychology and I thought, oh my God, that sounds like perfect for me. And Stanford was the, uh, the top place for studying mathematical psychology and I think it was recommended by one of my professors. And so I went to Stanford to get a PhD in mathematical psychology. And when I realized what that exactly was, once, after I got there, I thought, this is not really, this is not my cup of tea. Yeah. 
So I had to plow my way through graduate school and find something that would grab me. Uh, and eventually it became memory. Yeah. Okay, so I read that story about how you were in a social psych class and you asked a question related to memory and your professor offered for you to work on this project with him. Yeah. So what do you, what was it about memory, do you think, that attracted you? Uh, I, I, I don't know. It wasn't so much that it was about memory. It, I think it was a chance to... I had been working on, on a huge project that my PhD advisor had a huge factory thing going, and I was a little piece of that factory. Yeah. So this was a chance to actually work on an experiment that was kind of more manageable yeah. and and you know I owe it to that experience to teach me how to design materials and run subjects and analyze data and convert it into an article. Mm -hmm. um, but, so I, I, I don't think I had some special interest in memory. I think it was wanting to be part of the process. Right. Okay, so that actually leads me into my next question, which was you started this sort of public outreach really soon after you graduated, right? So I had that you got your PhD in 1970, is that right? And then yes. you wrote this Psychology Today article in 1974. So this is not long after you graduated that all of this started. So why why do you, were you attracted to this public outreach idea? Or was it this sort of like much more interested in applied work instead of being a cog in a bigger project? <clears throat> uh, it, uh, no, I didn't. I, I, well, let me just think, how, how did that happen? What happened before the Psychology Today article, which was a turning point, mm -hmm. um, is I'd been doing... Uh, I'd been studying semantic memory, mm -hmm. which is memory for, you know, words and concepts and, you know, the, our knowledge of the world, not our personal experiences. Uh, I had then decided I wanted to do some work that was more socially relevant, uh, and, and there was a long conversation I had with a cousin that got me to that point. Uh, and so how about, how about memory for accidents and crimes? Mm -hmm. So I started these experimental studies of memory, started with accidents because I got some funding from the U.S. Department of Transportation. But oh, okay. That, yeah, that's how that happened. Um, that's why I was showing people accidents and studying witness memory and the questioning process. And then I thought, you know, I really want to see real witnesses in a real situation. So I had recently moved to the University of Washington, take up a faculty position, and a, a, a family friend worked in the public defender's office. He was a trial attorney. And I said, well, how about, I've been studying witness memory. I consult on a case of yours for free in exchange for you let me hang out and watch you interact with witnesses and how you... So I worked on this case with this public defender, and it was a female defendant. She was accused of uh, murder, and the question is, was it self-defense or was it premeditated? 
and she was acquitted. And it was then that I decided to write that article for Psych Today. I wrote about the case, mm -hmm. the woman, the murder acquittal, this psychology of witness memory as I had been um, looking at it at that point. And I, I, I was really, I never expected. But Psych Today had a circulation, maybe over a million lawyers, police, uh, lots of people read it, not just psychology students or faculty or people interested in psychology. And um, then the phone started ringing. Hmm. Will you work on my case? Because mm -hmm. the woman was acquitted. Right. Will you speak about this science at my group of lawyers? Uh, and that's how I started interacting with lawyers. That is amazing. So did you, how did you think about juggling this with your academic career? Were you thinking, well, these are complementary to each other because I'm designing these experiments? Or were you thinking, this is an interesting real-world application and I want to have more? I, I can't remember exactly what I was thinking then, but, but I know now and I, I've known for a long time that these court cases are fascinating to work on. I'm, I'm kind of a true crime aficionada anyhow, so I now get, I get to read police reports and all kinds of right. juicy stuff and, and, and get paid for it. Right. But I get to bring these, these cases into my classes. Um, sometimes the cases make me think of studies that I want to do because I'll be looking in the literature and there's not an answer to some question I have, and so we design a study. So it's it like it's this mutually interactive experience. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I love the story where you were driving, where you were trying to come up with a, an experiment, and you ended up coming up with the Lost in the Shopping Mall experiment. And the background was sort of that you were, I think you were consulting on a case or some cases where they didn't, the argument was, well, what you're doing in the lab isn't exactly like this real world application. So I think this is something that's interesting and relevant to a lot of us because we want to generally describe our work in a way that is more interesting outside of the lab. And you have this specific feedback where you had to walk this fine line between what are you doing in the lab and what exactly is the real world application? And I think it was really bold and intelligent how you were trying to make more out of your work outside the lab and also respond to criticisms and come up with new experiments. So what was that like for you? Was this frustrating because you were getting feedback that you were like lacking ecological validity on really good science or what was that like? Well, <clears throat> I can, I can, well, I can definitely tell you because I, I that was a important time. But I, at some point, I had been involved in quite a few cases that might have involved armed robberies, murders. Mm -hmm. uh, but I got a call from a lawyer who said, "I used to be a public defender. I, I've tried many murder cases. I have." a murder case that is so strange, I don't know what to do with it. So he's representing George Franklin, a man who's accused of murdering a little girl 20 years earlier. 
And the only evidence against George Franklin is the testimony of his daughter, who says that when she was eight years old, so 20 years earlier, she saw her father murder her little best friend. She repressed her memory for 20 years. Now the memory's back. And he says, what do you know about this repression stuff? I said, well, you know, by that time I'd had my PhD for 20 years. I'd I'd heard of repression. I said it's kind of a hand-me-down Freudian idea, but I don't know what the evidence is for it. And when I started to look and, and look in the literature as a consultant to him, there was no credible scientific support for this idea that you could repress your memory for this murder and a what would be other murders and years of sexual abuse, be completely unaware of it, no credible scientific support. So if these memories aren't real, where could they have come from? Maybe it was a suggestion. But all I'd done is turn a stop sign into a yield sign. <laughs> yeah, and, and so... Uh, a great paper, come on. <laughs> that, uh, that was a really good paper. And, and, and actually... Microsoft bought my stop sign and yield sign slides for $100 to use in their encyclopedia. I'm very proud of that. But yeah, it it was um, a good paper. But you're trying to, you're trying to, somebody can remember a stop sign as a yield sign. You're trying to say that's relevant to somebody who remembers a murder and a bunch of sexual assaults. Show me you can plan an entire memory. If you want to talk about a false memory. Mm-hmm. And so I then, I spent a couple of years trying to figure out yeah. what could I plant. I want to plant a seed and watch it grow. How to do it, what kind of a memory to plant, how to get around the human subjects problem. Right. Because obviously they're not going to let you try to convince women that their father, you know, raped them for years and and watched and made them participate in the murder. And so I had meetings with grad students. I would bring it up all the time. I was visiting the University of Georgia, and I was getting a ride from the university back to the airport, uh, talking to Denise Park, and her two kids were in the back seat, and trying, telling her this dilemma, I want to plan a whole memory, but what? And all of a sudden, somebody says something about getting lost. And we're passing a shopping center. I said, yes, <laughs> in a shopping center, maybe. And the kid uh, says, yeah, that would be scary. And <laughs> so I thought, okay. And I brought this idea back to Washington, and and then... It evolved into the Lost in the Mall study. That's amazing. And were people more receptive to that when you were consulting in the courtroom? No, no. The 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 repression aficionados said getting lost is so common. Hmm. If you want to talk about this on the same page, the same paragraph, you're talking about memory for murder and sexual abuse. Show me you can plan a false memory for something that would be more bizarre, unusual, traumatic than getting lost and, and rescued. So that was the next challenge, and we and others responded to that. And so now you see a string of studies done by many other people and some by us where we plant all kinds of rich, false memories. Okay, so that 
leads us into some of this repressed and recovered memory work. And I have a personal interest in this because my mom had a brain tumor and she has passed away, but she got involved with a therapist who was um, alienating her from my dad and from her own parents. And I remember that she read The Courage to Heal. <gasps> Yeah. Oh so, my God. I know. Oh and no. Isn't <laughs> so, this funny? Because I was a kid and I didn't understand what was happening. I knew that there were. Of course, of you wouldn't. Right. So this therapist's name was Cynthia, and there were so many fights about Cynthia. Right. And um, then when I got into college and I read more about the repressed and recovered memory stuff, and then your explanation of the courage to heal, all of these things from my childhood made so oh. much sense to me. So I was blown away that you uh, had this meeting with one of the authors from The Courage to Heal. Can you tell me a little bit about that? <clears throat> well, in the beginning, I, I really tried. I wanted to fully understand this. And for, for, for some period of time, I thought maybe, maybe there are repressed memories, but there are also false memories. And I, I did have a meeting with Ellen Bass, but... I, and I wrote about that meeting, but I, I, I actually have to go back and read my old writings to remember that because it would have been so many decades yeah. ago. But I, for a while, did try to, uh, you know, when I wrote my first paper on this subject for the American psychologist called The Reality of Repressed Memories, mm -hmm. I, I was really trying to understand the phenomenon. I was reading everything I could get my hands on, um, and, you know, I, I, I was trying to be, uh, I don't know, have a productive educational interaction with people. Mm -hmm. um, and I never had a bad experience with El Ellen Bassett. That was fine. But with some of the others, I have felt so betrayed and because uh, they're vicious and they fight dirty. Yeah. Well, and you, but you came out as winning all of these awards for all of your work ultimately on it. So what, what is that perspective like that now sort of the field has rallied behind you and given you all of these accolades for all of your work, but you went through a lot. Oh yeah, there. I did. I mean, I, I went through, you know, well, death threats and, um, threatening organizations that were having me speak with lawsuits and um, letter-writing campaigns to the chair of my department, the president of my universities, mm -hmm. uh, and then a, a, a major lawsuit that lasted for years mm -hmm. that was extremely time-consuming and so on. So it's been a lot of hassle, and it hasn't ended. Some of these people are... Are still out there. I, I, you, they haven't caught on that maybe, <laughs> maybe they'd be better off if they didn't cling to this right. viciousness. Mm -hmm. But oh yeah, it's it's got every every still every few weeks there's something. Really, yeah. I had no idea it was that ongoing. Yeah, I mean when, later I can't because it'll have to show you. I'll you know show you some anti-semitic and anti anti-vicious uh emails i've gotten and you know in the last couple of years wow i didn't realize it was that ongoing 
Yeah. So, but it, but the awards and the and the recognition, but mostly the gratitude from these accused families, mm -hmm. um, are, are what's sustaining. What makes it worth it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, how did you have the strength and wherewithal to go into this sort of public outreach role? really early on because we were talking about how some scientists are so afraid of saying that their work generalizes beyond the lab right and i know you had you wrote about getting some of those criticisms from other psychologists and now looking back on it you are you know one of the top most influential psychologists of the last century but at the time how did you have the guts to decide, no, it's important that this work goes beyond the lab and it's okay that we didn't test exactly this. I mean, where did that come from? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it, maybe part of it is that part of it is I, I've, I've been in the trenches with these, I've seen these accused mm -hmm. family members just wring their hands and cry and, mm -hmm. and, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you one story that I don't, it's maybe partly responsive to your question, but there was a Dutch filmmaker, um, a very prominent Dutch filmmaker, who was interviewing a whole bunch of people about what brings beauty and consolation to their lives. So this Dutch filmmaker was interviewing Nobel Prize winners and Jane Goodall and whole bunch of musicians and scientists and and so he came to me and he said I want to interview you and what brings beauty and consolation to your life I said well I don't know how to answer that could you tell me what other people are saying yeah. uh, and and then I'll just make a recognition test you know <laughs> yes <laughs> no you know <laughs> well some people you know it's Mozart it's butterflies it's their children I said Mozart is fine, you know, butterflies, okay, they're nice. <laughs> Children, I don't have any. Um, those are the things that other people brought him. And I brought him a falsely accused couple. Uh, yeah. And so he interviewed me for this series that went on Dutch television in my living room with this falsely accused couple that I had brought him. And... He interviewed the couple, and, and you can even find this. It's on, you can, these, all these episodes are on YouTube. And, and then he interviewed me afterwards. He said, you know, you're kind of weird. I, I kind of <laughs> get butterflies and Mozart and children even, but falsely accused couple, what is beautiful about that to you? Or consoling, I said, it's just, they suffer so much, and then they meet other people who are going through the same thing, they don't feel so alone. Mm -hmm. They form these friendships and these bonds with these other people who are going through the same thing. And they're so grateful to me for having facilitated this. I just find that beautiful. And uh, so I don't know if that helps answer the question, but it it's those experiences that make it possible to plow ahead when some of the really nasty things happen. What is your, what is your time? How do you divide your time now? 
What is your, we're so fascinated by your time management abilities to oh. be able to juggle your academic career. Answer your emails so fast, and probably. I know, because people are impressed with my email <laughs> answering habits. <laughs> what, do you, what, what do your days look like? How do you juggle what you're doing? Uh, the alarm goes off at 7 o'clock. Uh, I make my um, coffee. Um, I got a Keurig. I'm very excited. I bought it with my miles. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> my United miles, yeah. So I now you have my... a lot of United miles, I'm sure. Oh yeah, that was an that was an incredible moment when I hit two two million United oh, miles. Gosh. Um, just United, yeah. And it was quite an experience. I was changing planes in Chicago, and I walked out of the plane to get catch the connection, and a handsome United employee said. Ms. Loftus or something, congratulations, you've made um, two million miles. I said, oh, thank you. Okay. Uh, and then took me for a drink. Um, and uh, then I made my next flight. But then um, my, the reward they give you was lifetime membership in the United Club. Oh. So I said, um, I'm already a lifetime member. Can you can you give me anything else? Can you give me anything else? And well, you can give it to someone else. Oh. So do you realize how when you get something that is so valuable like that, and you can give it to one other human being, how do you decide who that human being should be? Right. It's yeah. It, it's tough. I mean, my brothers didn't travel enough it wasn't gonna you know so it couldn't be them the my age friends well they were a little old <laughs> so <laughs> and they so they wouldn't get that so many lifetime, lifetime. <laughs> so i had to find you did uh, the you did the calculation to see what the expected value was exactly <laughs> exactly and so i gave it to i gave it to a former postdoc of mine whom i'm very close to we still collaborate Marianne Gary for her 50th birthday lifetime uh, membership in the United Club. And, um, but it, it's an exercise. How do you decide yeah. <laughs> That's who you're going to give um, this valuable thing to? That's so funny. Okay, I took you off track. Oh, yeah, we were on United yes. and my Carrick. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, back to, yeah. So then I go to work and I see students. I go to faculty meetings, I, inter, you know, I, whatever, a lot of faculty meetings, because I'm in a lot of departments, and uh, meet with the students, teach the classes. How are you, how do you travel while you're doing all that, though? Uh, well, I, uh, the university activities are in the beginning of the week, okay. so I can do speeches or, okay. or travel or meetings, conferences, you know, on Thursday, Friday, in, or the weekend. Okay. So, so that, that's how I manage, the, yeah. And I work every day because that's what I, that's what I like doing. I, if I don't get in a chunk of work, uh, I feel I haven't earned my fun. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So how do you decide, I bet you get invitations for... A million things. So how do you decide where you want to spend I don't know how I decided with you to do that. <laughs> the Frontiers, I, I think it was the Young Mind thing. Yeah. And it was about eyewitness, and you said, 
this isn't exactly my area. And it didn't seem like it would be too much work, but what no. What are you saying now? Are you saying it was too much work? Oh, no, no. <laughs> okay. uh, oh, no, no. Oh, no. It, it never was too much work. But, but I do... I mean, every, every other day, many times a week, it's, um, I, I, I need a mentor for my science project. I, I just, just yesterday, uh, um, we're reading about your study in England. Will you, will you come talk to my class if you're in the UK, or will you Skype into us? Will you, uh, whatever. Uh, every, because the, the, the elementary students, the junior high, the yeah. high school, the college students, they all, they all think they can write and that I can just like drop everything and go do that. And so I have a little, whatever you call it, um, I made a little response. Okay, yeah. Dear so-and-so, yeah. you know, your project sounds so interesting, but I am so sorry. I'm way behind on my work and I cannot take on any more uh, non-essential work. And I really wish you the best, and you know, yeah. and and then they thank me for this thing yeah. I plopped into their yeah. their, their well, email. Well, it's amazing but. to get a response from Elizabeth Loftus. Are you kidding? Yeah, that's funny. Okay, so um, you wrote a little bit about having some pressure from academics to not do this other what you called somewhere in non-traditional um, aspects of your job, right? So what, consulting. Or, yeah. And I'm wondering, I think a lot of people, myself included, have taken sort of non-traditional paths with their careers. I think you kind of need to be creative depending on the job market or what feels like the best blend of teaching and research and service for you. And so I'm wondering sort of how you kind of stay true to yourself in determining, no, this is my non-traditional career path because there was nobody else like you. There's nobody that set this example for you. So where did that come from? The idea like I could be an academic and I can consult and I'm not going to be swayed to not do this. <clears throat> I'm not sure. I, I really enjoyed the, the, the legal stuff. Again, you know, I, mm -hmm. I kind of love the true crime stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I could, I, I loved immersing myself in these actual human stories of court cases. Um, they were, they provided beautiful illustrations and material. Uh, I did have one of my professors that I was very fond of that wrote letters of recommendation for me, Gordon Bauer, he once said to me, you know, you'll, You'll never get in the National Academy with this, but I think what you're doing is very important. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. Funny. So I, re I remember that conversation with Gordon, but, and 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 I thought I never would either. So, right, right. <laughs> but it didn't matter because I was like like liking what I was doing, and then the surprise happened. Oh, that's so great. So, so your advice to other people is to follow what interests you. Yes, and I, I mean, I think this kind of thing that you're doing, fabulous. Oh, thanks. Yeah, fabulous. Why do you say that? Um, because I think you have the potential for reaching, you know, many more than the 12 people I can reach when I testify in a trial or, or 
what used to be the 150 that I would teach in cognitive psychology right. survey class or you know or now the 15 I get in my graduate seminar you you have the potential for yeah. reaching a large number of people with a message and and ideas yes okay so what would you be if you weren't a psychologist because I think the answer is a crime writer um I, maybe I, 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 I'm not quite sure. I, I, a detective maybe a detective. or something or, a, um, I used to be very interested in investments. We can talk about that okay. sometime, uh -huh. you know, and, and, and the psychology of the stock market and, uh, so the psychology of the stock market from like decision making, that kind of perspective? Well, I, I, I mean, ever since my, my grandmother gave me a bond and for graduation and I cashed it in and bought some shares of ComSat and they went up, I, I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> uh, and so I, I was very interested in that and I used to sit and sometimes in you know, Merrill Lynch type offices and watch ticker tapes and things like that. I, you know, it was just another interest. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what, changing gears a little bit to hot topics in psychology, one of the topics that comes up a lot is this so-called replication crisis. Mm -hmm. Wait, you just took a deep breath. What's your, I thought you might have opinions on this because the replication crisis, the idea of it is sort of like handcuffing people, and you're really interested in getting out there in the real world. So what's your... Well, I, I have such mixed feelings about all this. I Well, first of all, there are things I like to do that I've always done that I feel are now illegal, like peaking. Yeah. How can you... <laughs> How can you not be how curious? Can you, how, can you not how can you not peak? Right. Yeah. You know, or, it's it... or think you have no programming errors. <laughs> right. There's right. No reason to look to see if it's actually right. recording the data. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I like to peak, and I, I still believe in one-tail tests. You know, when you predict in advance, and yeah. and I, and I'm a little worried because. You know, I have, I'm, a, I'm friendly with Susan Fisk and the methodological terrorism, you know, and on the other hand, I've got colleagues here who are very into, and I've seen things take off when they don't replicate and right. because it's a sexy finding. And right. so on the other hand, the efforts to, to replicate that, that one study that showed only 40% replicated, you know the one right. I'm talking yeah. about? But some of those were not very good efforts to... Yeah, they weren't true replications. They weren't true, Absolutely. and they, you know, it, 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 they'd run in another country yes. when it was about bias that could right. be culturally influenced. And so there's, a, there's some of it we won't, is good. We don't want bad findings out there, but some of it is, it feels like bullying. And so I've got really mixed, I'm much more mixed about it. And I'm going to leave it to other people to, to do it because it's, it's too stressful for me.
Okay, so I also wonder what it's like to be Elizabeth Loftus while you're watching the current events in the world in terms of like fake news and um, people having allegations against other people, right? Um, like the Brett Kavanaugh thing, for example. And I'm wondering how this, uh, what is it like to be you and to be perceiving what's going on in the world? Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, I wake up and read the newspaper in the morning and I'm having a different experience than the rest of the world because the, the, the most people are saying, you know, there's an accusation. Oh my God, that creep! Uh, what a pedophile! What? A, and I'm sitting here saying, wonder if it's a false accusation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the, so that's my first thought. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do feel, particularly right now, in in the whole Me Too climate, people are not as receptive to contemplating false accusations or thinking about them or appreciating that they're a problem. Uh, so it's a bit of a setback for my whole effort. Um, but I think the pendulum will swing back to the middle at some point. I'm involved in a number of, you know, local at my university and national uh, high-profile cases of where the rest of the world thinks these are the worst people in the world, and I'm saying there's something fishy here. Mm -hmm. So it separates me yeah. from the many of the people that I share this planet with. So do you, this, do you think this goes back to your math background, that you're just really logical and taking the scientific approach to what you're hearing? Uh, no, it's, I don't think it's so much math. I think it's that, you know, when I, I mean, when I hear Christine Blasey Ford, and she sounds so believable and so credible, and I even have had an experience when I was 15 that was a cousin of her experience. Mm -hmm. So I immediately sort of want to believe it, and then I have to say to myself, wait a minute, it's 35 years ago. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of other suggestive things that have happened. Get a hold of yourself. <laughs> Remember your research. Uh, right. and, and, uh, but that, that was a difficult one to navigate. I actually did about 10 interviews, including Anderson Cooper. I did oh. Fox News and, and a bunch of other outlets on that. And, and I was in a difficult position because so many people just wanted to completely believe her uncritically and not look into it. And I did not want to ruin my ability to have any semblance of credibility when I'm testifying right. about some other matter, and then this uh, gets used against that. Right. So, I, yeah, I had to navigate this fine line. Yeah. You have to navigate this in your personal life with your friends and with your colleagues. You wrote about that in your books, too, about picking cases that would upset your friends, for example. Um, yeah, well, I mean, of course, when I had the issue over the accused Nazi, yeah, right. then I had problems with my my Jewish family and friends. And, um, and, and you know, there are some people who whose cases I've worked on um, that 
many people out there in the real world who don't know a lot about the case just think they're so completely guilty that mm-hmm. Penn State, mm-hmm. Cosby, and others, Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. There's so much more to those stories than people realize. So interesting. So can you talk about these cases, or is most of that private information? Well, I, I, I never you know, know what is kind of public record or right. uh, and right. things like that, but... Uh, so that's a little bit of a difficulty. That's, that's a fishy area for you. I get it. I get it. I actually had a science nerd question, which is, do you think I could try to forget something? Now, you know, I don't want to call it repression, but... Do, like could, motivated forgetting? Yeah. Could I, like, not... I had something happen, and I want to forget it, so I just don't retrieve it. Or well, I... you can distract yourself. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, so for me, you know, when, I mean, I'm still very, even though my mother died um, you know, when I was 14, sometimes when I think about her, I can, you know, get upset. And, and I, if I'm not in the mood for being upset um, and feeling what I can feel, I can distract myself. I can start to think about other things. I can, and that's what people do when they don't want to let these intrusive thoughts take take them over. So I don't is that forgetting? Um, maybe what your question is about is can you erase a memory? Yeah. Well, we've tried to erase some memories. It's harder to do. Mm-hmm. The, the way I can erase a memory is substitute a new one. Mm-hmm. So if I make people believe it was a stop sign instead of, right. then the, the yield sign is weakened. Um, right. That you can do. But we've actually tried to delete memories by getting people to rehearse everything else, but not this. And, you know, there is retrieval-induced inhibition, and that can kind of happen. But trying to take away a memory is is really a hard thing to Uh, do. So you think more Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I I like the example from the, the Ghostbusters which is you need to not think about this thing, so you have this diversionary thought that you think about this other thing. Right, yeah. and that's what, I think that's what I do yeah. uh, when I don't want to think about something that makes me sad. Yeah. So is that, yeah. Is yeah, that no. forgetting? Is, yeah. that, is that weakening? It makes it harder to retrieve in the future, though, right? Presumably, because you've Well, if you believe Michael it. Anderson's work and, yeah. uh, and on... Right, right then it, it might make it harder to retrieve in the future if you do that a lot. But Right. I mean, I ask because I spend, I spend a lot of a class in cognitive psychology on your stuff, uh, including, you know, the, re- the evidence, the lack of evidence for repression and all that other stuff. Uh, and then the students always say, but wait, like I can make myself forget things though. And so it is one of these like really strong intuitions that people have. And so I, you know, I, I include, well, I include some slides with Mike Anderson's think, no, think. Oh, think, no, think. Yeah. Maybe this is what you're doing. Yeah. If, if you can replicate it in your mind and, and that's what's happening. But you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. Do you know what I mean? That, well, and also, you know, there's some weirdness going on with the Mike Andersons. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, yeah, okay, I can say, I can appreciate the basic finding, but whether 
you know, he shows a little of, you can take it from 80% to 70 kind of thing. Right. You know, it's yeah. not, this is like wiping out right. 16 years of rapes, you right. know? That, I mean, <laughs> I mean <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So this, so the idea that you can replace a memory, I remember from your talk at Psychonomics that this seems to be some of what you're working on now in terms of, or maybe just more recently, in terms of trying to, um, you, you know, the idea of like, can I convince you that you like vegetables or something like that? Yeah. So is this, um, how do you describe that, that more current work in terms of like, well, this is happening and memory is malleable, so why don't we use it to our benefit? Okay, well, but just to step back a little, um, so we're now planting these rich false memories. Uh, I'm obviously exploring new questions about this, including uh, the, the, the issue, if I plant a memory in you, does it have repercussions? Does it affect your later thoughts, your later intentions, your later behavior? So it was then that we decided, well, let's look at this with food. And I'm, 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 what we were thinking, and I'm, the we was my then postdoc, Dan Bernstein, who's now teaching in Vancouver, Canada, and a couple of graduate students who are now doctors. Okay. Um, so... When, if people really get sick on a food, they don't, they don't like it very much. They can develop taste aversions. Right. What if we plant a false memory? You got sick on a food. Would they be less interested in eating that food? So we did, we did these studies where we planted a false memory. You got sick on pickles or eggs or strawberry ice cream, and people weren't as interested in eating those foods. Mm -hmm. Then... One of my graduate students, I think, said, well, what if we did the opposite? Plan a warm, fuzzy memory about a healthy food. Would people want to eat it more? And we did that with asparagus. We planted a false memory that you loved asparagus the first time you tried it as a kid, and warm, fuzzy memory, and people were more interested in asparagus. And I, I, love, I like that paper, even though, it, because the title, it's one of my favorite titles, Asparagus, a love story is the, <laughs> is the title of our paper. So then I'm starting to think about this human memory engineering. If we can plant false memories and make people believe things and remember things and live a happier, healthier life, should we do this? And uh, when I suggested this during an interview, like a journalist interview, that maybe, maybe we ought to do this. A therapist can't do that. They're not right. supposed to deceive people, but a parent could do this with their obese or overweight right. teenager or older child or whatever. And, and then the critics, you know, they came out in force. So there she goes again. Now she's advocating <laughs> that, that parents lie to their children. And I go, oh, my God, hello, Santa Claus. You know? <laughs> I mean... If you, which would you really rather have? You know, a kid who's obese and has a higher chance of getting diabetes and heart trouble and a shortened lifespan, or someone who has a little fiction that they love asparagus? Right, right. Um, it just seemed like a no-brainer to me. But yes, 
Well, especially because so many <laughs> memories are fiction anyway, right? I exactly. Mean, right. Exactly. So. Yeah, that's such interesting work. It's fun. That's fun work to think about, especially as a parent. <laughs> yeah. And all well, then we then went with one of my former students. We did it with alcohol. Uh-huh. Plan a false memory that you got sick on a vodka drink as a teenager, and they don't want so much vodka. <laughs> That sounds like a great plan as yeah, a parent, right. sending your kid to yeah. college. Yeah. <laughs> they all want their students to be in your experiment. That's funny. Okay, yeah. So what are the um, what's going on in the field today that you're interested in, or what are the hot topics that you're most interested in being engaged in now that you have? This well, right now, I'm. I mean, first of all. Um, in a few studies, we and others have shown that you're more likely to develop a false memory if it makes someone you don't like look bad mm. than if it makes someone you like look bad. Yeah. So we showed this uh, in a study with doctored photographs, um, a fake photograph and fake story that made Obama look bad, the Republicans were more likely sure. to fall for it. And, and, you know, and, and similarly with the Democrats. Mm-hmm. The, the recent study that we published this year with um, uh, Gillian Murphy, an Irish, young Irish um, memory scientist in Ireland, and our collaborators, um, in the course of a political campaign about abortion and repealing the ban on abortion, the very oh, respective right. ban. Um, if you are pro-choice, you're more likely to fall for a fake news story that makes the anti-choice people look bad and vice versa. So mm-hmm. um, uh, this weekend I was working on a manuscript of another graduate student, Becky Grady, who got her PhD and is now writing up a piece of her dissertation work. Same thing happened with the 2016 election. More likely to fall for a fake news story about Clinton if you're a Trump supporter, um, if it makes Clinton look bad. So this shows you about motivated false memories. And and about, about fake news and how easy it is to plant these stories. And interestingly, um, some of my students now, uh, one of them who got his PhD is now working for Facebook. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Another one got, um, got her PhD. She's got, she did an internship at Google. Mm-hmm. So I, I see a connection to this whole fake news problem right now. And, so what do you think is the role of Facebook? Do you think that they should be allowed to put ads on? Uh, well, it's interesting because uh, according to one of my grad students, the, the warnings, watch out, could be fake news, don't work very well. So yeah. we, we gotta we got to figure out some other way of protecting our people right. from the damaging effects of fake news. Right. And... And I think what she's done is basically to show that what's being tried now is not working. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I had one more question that I was going to let Jeff ask questions if he wants to. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, um, are you J E F F or G E O F? G E. I'm another one of those. Another one. Oh, yeah. okay. I like the G E O F F. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm I'm a I'm a G E O F F yeah. person. It's yeah. popular in our family too. Oh. <laughs> okay. 100 of the jabs. 100 of the jabs are still there. Um, okay, so my last question for you is about the 100 most eminent psychologists list and how you are the top-ranked woman on this list. So, first of all, you should be way ahead of several other people on that list. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to be honest. Not naming names. <laughs> Not naming names, but I mean even the top. Couple. Number 58. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, Freud and Piaget and Skinner are up there at the top. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, what what does it... Um... I'll tell you, I think that helped me get this job here at UC Irvine, too. Oh, it, it really? It came out right at that time. It was really excellent. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, what has it been like being a woman in the field? So, I mean, certainly being a top woman in the field implies that you are dealing with breaking barriers for other women. I mean, that's how I read that. Uh, in graduate school, there was one full-time woman, Eleanor Maccabee at Stanford. Oh um, it, it, so, but you, you know psychology is so transformed right now. Um, I mean, we, it, it's, you know, we, we, we're just like dying to get some men in the psych department now. And, and, um, and, uh, we don't get any credit for hiring women in terms of, you know, our diversity statistics, um, because it, it, it had, you know, you, you can see when you read these papers, and you look at the, the the demographics on the subjects in the methods section. Yeah, it's all it's vast majority are women. So, I, you know, I I I don't know what to say because I want psychology to have the respect that it deserves. Mm-hmm. And uh, but will it be devalued because? It's predominantly, I don't know. I, uh, this is yeah. something I think we need to think about. But, but there's not a woman problem right now. Well, why, why is the top <laughs> woman number 58 out of 100? That's a problem on that list. Um, okay, well, you have to look at what, what goes into that statistic. So it's citations, it's memberships in academies, um, it's whatever else. It's mentions in introductory psychology textbooks. Right. Um, We'd have to look at. Yeah. Actually, we we could look at that and we could figure out how to game it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very empirical. <laughs> I, I actually did have one other question and that is that we usually ask people kind of what their pet peeve is or maybe that's that's a more negative way to say it than I want to which is kind of what's the thing they find themselves saying to their trainees more often than any other uh, you know like what my advisor like to say people like a simple story so so you know try to make your paper as simple as possible so that people can understand it and that's just kind of a paper writing one. But I was wondering if there was 
something, something that you find yourself kind of saying over and over again to your trainees? Oh, I well, definitely when they when they write up the results. It's the results section of the paper when they when my graduate students write the first draft of a results section. I'm constantly having to teach them. Um, I don't want you to just start your paragraph by saying, we did a three by two yes. by two analysis of variance <laughs> and we found that this factor was, you know, whatever. I mean, I want you to pretend you're sitting next to the person, you're showing them a table, you're showing them a figure, you're walking them through it. Look at that point, <laughs> you know, yeah. or look at that number in that cell. And then, the next paragraph way down is, and the statistical uh, analysis of these data. So that's, that's the lesson I keep on having to teach over and over and over. But it's funny, my good friend, Roddy Rodiger, um, who's just retired, and I said, really, you're retiring? Because he, he's younger than me. And so I thought, oh, I, I, I feel nervous when people younger than me retire. And, I, and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm tired of teaching my students counterbalancing. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I guess I understand that, but my thing is trying to teach them how to convey their results in a, in a, a audience-friendly way. Because they want to plunge right in there with the, you know, the, with the mind-bending numbers. Sometimes to three or four decimal places, I think, isn't two enough, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that is related to the fact that I, so I'm a huge fan of Alan Alda and his Center for Communication Science oh, and the motivation there. I have a crush on him. Oh my God. Yes. You know what? Uh, I have a crush on you him. You have Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. She, oh my God. That, that's her reservation. My one if, that if, I'm allowed to cheat on him with. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, permission? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, then I'll share him with you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because I will share him. But because, uh, oh, he is so amazing. I saw. I saw your uh, obviously. Did you I watch that? Yes. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, it was. I used it in my classes before. Oh. But what I was gonna say to you? Yeah. Though, forget Ellen all for a minute. No, let's not forget like, him. Yeah. Yeah. No, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, can you arrange that? <laughs> get on that. Get on that. Yeah, we'll get Henry going. Okay. Out. However, I have, have been a big fan of his because of this idea of getting science to the general public. But as I was going through your older work, I realized that you were doing this first. That I would argue that you are one of the main people who started, who created this idea of applied psychology. And I'm so... Um, grateful for your work and I find it so useful to get other students excited. So I'm teaching a cognitive psychology class now and I told them that I was coming to interview you and they're like all really excited. <laughs> <just so> you <laughs> know. <laughs> and I think that your impact on the field will only continue to grow as people recognize how important it is to get science out into the general public. Ellen obviously copied you, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he did things really well and started that institute at mm -hmm. Stony Brook and he's yeah, he and plus this whole scientific American frontiers. That's yes. what I meant when I said you're gonna reach a lot of people. Look at all the people 
he can reach. Yes. Okay, yeah. I was actually using his... I would use I would buy the DVDs for the Scientific American Frontiers. Yeah. I would use it in my classes when I started teaching. And I went to a new institution, and somebody told me that he was a, a movie star or a TV. I just thought he was like this really enthusiastic guy about science. You didn't even know no. about MASH? Never seen no, MASH. really? <laughs> yes. I just thought like, this man like, loves science. <laughs> interviewing people that that's what yeah. I thought that he did but yeah. anyway I've used I've used his stuff in my class but he you know he his I don't know I think it pales in comparison to what you've done so I just want to say thank you so much oh that's sweet but he doesn't cross many fields you know He's, <laughs> I, I just do it in this little you know one field he does it across many fields but it's our field so it's we a, appreciate we it yeah okay <laughs> that's right well, we should probably let you go and maybe go catch some yeah, dinner. Yeah, let's go get some dinner. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's do that. Okay, because then we can, you know, have a really fun gossip yeah, now. Yeah, that's right. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you for doing this with